I don't know if you're one of those people that gets easily excited over different things, uh, uh, gets great anticipation of things that are going on in your life or different experiences you're going to have or different things. Sometimes we get really, really excited, and then sometimes we're kind of let down at the expectation. The expectations don't meet how excited we are, uh, or the reality doesn't meet our expectations at different times. And uh, maybe you can think of different times in your life where the opposite is true. You're really, really excited about something. And I don't mean that you're just kind of apathetic towards it, but you're really excited about it. And then when it comes to fruition, whatever it is that you're excited about, it far exceeds your expectations. Maybe you can think of some different times in your life when that's happened. I can think of silly examples of, of, I remember going to a football game with my, my sister and both of my brothers, and we all got to be together, and we were just excited to go to the game, and then we ended up on the field, and then Texas A&M destroyed the number one team in the nation. And I never thought they were going to win. I was just excited to be there, and then it was so much better than what I thought. Now, that's not even really that great of example. Or I can think of different times where just different things I was really excited about, and then what actually happened is better. Uh, probably the best example I could think of as I was thinking through, or one of the best I could think of, is I remember when uh, uh, Joanna, my wife, was uh, pregnant with Asher. And we'd had some complications and lost a couple pregnancies before that. And then Asher, and we went and we saw the ultrasound, and you see a heartbeat, and then you go back later and you see this baby growing. And then at that time, it was around the time when they started to have 3D ultrasounds, and you could actually see the baby's face. And I remember going and being so excited, and we got this little black and white grainy picture that you could see his face and so excited for it and as exciting as that was and the expectation that grew it's nothing compared to seeing your first child born and then holding them overwhelmed nothing you could do could prepare you for that overwhelmed the expectations uh, the the reality far exceeds your expectations in that and seeing that and being in that and i remember that so clearly And in a lot of ways, that's what the book of Hebrews is saying over and over. That's what really chapter 8 says so well. That there's all these things that God was doing and was revealing and teaching us about who he is and what he's like and how we approach him and all these things. And then Jesus comes and it blows everything else away. Right? It says that in Hebrews 8 in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. It says in Jesus, this thing has now come and it is so far better. And so this morning we're going to look in Hebrews. We're going to continue in our study of the book of Hebrews together. And we're going to look at chapter eight. And what we're going to consider is really what the scriptures talk about, the, the old covenant and the new covenant. Or really how God was revealing himself before Christ, what we would call the Old Testament, and now after Jesus, what we call now the New Testament, when we look in our scriptures. The way God was revealing himself, and then as Jesus comes, the fullness of all his promises come to be. It's what we call the New Covenant. And so what he's pointing us to is why the New Covenant is so much better than the Old. The fullness of this picture. And so the way I want us to look at it this morning is we're going to consider for just a minute the Old Covenant. What did it mean? How did it work? What was the picture that was going on there? What was God teaching? And then secondly, why the new covenant is different, but it's so far better. Maybe we shouldn't say different, but fuller. It comes into its fullness and why that is so great. And then lastly, we're going to consider what does that bring for us in our lives today? Maybe some things that we maybe take for granted living in the New Testament age, living under this new covenant. Maybe we forget sometimes. And so before we do that, let's pray together. And then we're going to look at Hebrews 8 together. God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that it is uh, inspired by you, that it is life-giving, that it is eternal, that we can come to your word and be changed, that you meet us in it, that you reveal yourself to us in it. We pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we read it today, as we come to it, that you would show us more clearly who you are and the ways that you're working and what that means for us, and that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We thank you, thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So how does the old covenant, what does that mean? How does that work? How, why is the new so much better? And then what does that mean for us? And so as we think about the old covenant and what that means and how that works, we've been saying as we've been walking through Hebrews that this is a letter written to first century Christians that are dealing with all sorts of things. And if we, we've taken the approach as we've gone through Hebrews, many scholars believe, and I, and I tend to agree with them on this, that at this period when the, the letter to the Hebrews is written, it's a very unique time in history where the Old Covenant and the New Covenant overlap. And, and what we mean by that is, is there's a time that it goes on after Jesus comes and his life and his death and his resurrection that the, the temple is still functioning and going along. And that would be the case until 70 A.D., And so there's an overlap of about 40 years or so in there. And most believe that Hebrews is written to the early church sometime in that period before the temple has gone away. And so what we've been saying is we've been looking at it and we've been seeing all that uh, Hebrews says and points us to is we have this picture of the new covenant has come and the fullness of what that brings and Jesus brings in that. But there's these people that grew up in the old They grew up as Jews and now they have become Christians and they've seen the fullness and they're still trying to make sense of all this. There's points in their life where things are really hard and there's struggles and there's frustrations around them and they want to go back to what they know. And so the author says over and over and over, don't go back. Don't go back. The new in Jesus, the fulfillment of this is so far better. And he's continuing to remind us in that over and over. And so grounded in the middle of this is he's always making those comparisons. He's always coming back to this because they knew them so well. But for us as a people who've only ever lived in the new, in the new covenant, the the church age, walking through this, we sometimes forget what that must have been like. And so Hebrews is helping us in that. Now, there's a lot of practical things that apply directly to us when we think through this. And so I want us to think through this for just a minute. The old covenant, what does that mean and what does that look like? And so the beginning of verse six there in chapter eight, it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And so the author even uses that language there of covenant. And he's talking about this new covenant that's come in Christ and how it's better than the old. And so when we start to think about what that means, oftentimes within the church, we'll say covenant and we'll begin to talk about, uh, and I've done this before, I think we may have even done this in this series, we may say it's kind of like a contract. Uh, when we talk about covenant, it's a promise. But when we say that, although that's true and that is helpful to some degree, that's not the fullness of the picture of a covenant in the Bible. It's not just a contract. It's not just two parties sign this thing and we've entered into a, 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 a binding uh, law-type agreement. It's something far greater than that. And so when we start to think about what that means, it's not just a business transaction. It's, it's an intimate relationship of being tied together completely and fully and intimately. When we talk about this idea of covenant, maybe in our time, uh, it would be helpful to think of marriage. The idea of a marriage in Scripture, it is a covenant. We covenant together. But yes, it's an intimate relationship that we're tied together. 
The two flesh become one. A man and a woman come together and they become one is what Scripture tells us. And we covenant together. We make this promise that supersedes feelings. It's not just because we feel a certain way, but we're making a lifelong commitment to one another. And these, uh, this intimacy that's in that uh, just adds to the picture that's there. And so we see this image all throughout Scripture. We talk about marriage throughout Scripture as being an image of God's love for his people. You see that uh, running all the way through the storyline of Scripture. You get to the New Testament, and Paul will say this in Ephesians 5, don't you know that this picture of marriage, this mystery, points us to Christ's love for the church? And so God uses and ordains that institution to point us more fully to what it's like, and it helps us to understand this idea of the covenant. And so I want us just to think about the old covenant, the way God was binding himself and being near to his people and what that looks like. And so look at Hebrews 8, look at verse 3, starting in verse 3 there. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. It's talking about the uh, contrast of Jesus to the earthly priesthood. They serve, the earthly priesthood, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. First century audience, you can read those three verses and they got it fully. Everything he's talking about, they know exactly what he means. For us, it might be a little bit more uh, opaque here and we have to dig a little deeper. Now, depending on how well you know the Bible, you might go, yeah, I'm with you. I've got that. But the picture he's talking about is the way that the people related to God in the Old Testament when he gave the plans to Moses. You go back to Exodus and the picture that's there is God is making a way how a holy, perfect, glorious God can be near a sinful, broken people. How can that go together? How is this possible for God to enter into this covenant relationship and be walking with his people despite their sinfulness? And so what you see is God gives Moses a plan of how this is going to work. He gives him the plan for a a tabernacle, which is a a temple that's movable. It will later become the temple. He gives them the way that they are to approach God with sacrifices, a priesthood that will come on behalf of men and represent the people to God. He gives his law the way God uh, uh, represents himself to the people. This is what it looks like to live in an intimate, close relationship with me. This is the way you live. Later on, it would, it would morph into they have an actual physical earthly king that would represent God to the people as the priest represents the people to God. And you see both of those sides going. When he first gives it to Moses, by the way, God is their king. They don't have an earthly king. Later on, the people will go, well, we want to be like other nations. And so God says, fine, I'll give you an earthly king so you can be like that and you can understand that. But that wasn't really his plan. I mean, that's that's the sinfulness of man that wants that in that. And so God gives that to them in it. And so you see this picture that unfolds in the picture that's there. The law uh, relates God to the people. The priest represents the people to God who have failed to keep his law perfectly. And so there's a picture of how God can be close to a sinful, broken people we see in the Old Testament. And for me, it helps 
to think about this, to kind of visualize it in my mind. Maybe this helps you, maybe it doesn't. Joanna and I this year went to the Grand Canyon. It's the first time I'd ever been there. And to see that, if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, you stand on the edge of the rim, and it's about a mile down from where you stand down to the bottom of the canyon. It's remarkable. You can't even fathom uh, the, the scope and, and just how big it is when you're st- even when you're standing there. And then it goes across about four miles, and then it goes back up on the other side. And so you can think about trying to reach from one side of the other. And it makes me think in the Old Testament as if God is, is building a bridge to the other side in a way that his people can become closer. I remember my background's in architecture, and so I think of a bridge as being cantilevered. That means it's supported back here and it sticks way out over the chasm. And so forget about the mile down. Imagine it's infinitely far down and their two things are separated. And God says, I want to be near you, even though your sin and your rebellion has made it to where I cannot be completely and totally intimately involved with you. But I want to be near you. And so he gives them this way that he can dwell with them and be close, although they'll never be perfectly together in the old covenant. And so he gives them this temple. This tabernacle. And if you know the setup of that, there's the outer courtyard and then there's an inner courtyard and then there's this little building in the middle and in the very back, separated by a great big huge veil is what was called the Holy of Holies. And God's glory dwelled in that place and the people could approach and they could make sacrifices and they could come near, but they could not go in there. Only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement would go and make a sacrifice. And that's the only time. And so what God was teaching in all this in the old covenant, when you see it, is that you can be near to me and I want to be near to you. I want to be near to my people and I want you to be able to approach me. But over and over, he was showing and teaching them that by what you do and the sacrifices you bring and your efforts, you will never be able to come completely into the holy of holies. And so he was teaching that all along the way in the old covenant. And all along the way, as he was doing so, he would bring prophets, men who would speak the word of God, what God told them to say. And they would proclaim and they'd say, the day is coming where we're going to get to go all the way in. We're going to get to be with God at some point, although it's not quite yet, but it's coming. You actually see in Hebrews here, chapter 8, he, he quotes Jeremiah who's saying that very thing. The day's coming when I'm going to make a new covenant and it's no longer going to be this separation. But I'm teaching you right now that there is a separation and you need a savior to bridge this gap for you. And so that's the way the old covenant goes. And so day after day after day, they made sacrifices. Day after day, they would come to the presence of God, but not be able to enter in. And they would be reminded of this every single day. They made sacrifices. The blood that was spilled over and over and over again. We've talked about this earlier in Hebrews. You would lay your hands on the animal and you'd say, I have sinned and I deserve to die. But God is allowing this animal to take my place to be my my atonement for this right now. And then you would do it and then you'd have to go off and then you'd immediately blow it and you'd have to do it again. And over and over and over again. And so that's the image we see. But here's the problem. Oftentimes we take those religious observances and all those things and in our heart, our man-centeredness, which is just a polite way of saying our sinfulness, we want to define things by what we do rather than what God does. We begin to erect bigger and bigger systems, bigger and bigger bridges and saying we can get across this divide with what we do. That's what we do as people. That's what the heart of man wants to do is make it all about what we do. 
And if you look around at our world and the world religions today, what you see in every single world religion, if you boil it down to its most basic uh, points, is that a prophet comes or presumably a prophet and they say, this is what God's like. And yes, there is a chasm. And here's how you cross it. And then they'll tell you, you do A, B, C and D. And if you do it well enough, you'll make it across to God. Sadly, that's exactly what Islam is. There's a prophet, Muhammad, and he comes and he's the man of God. And he says, this is the way you reach Allah, the one and only true God. You pray and you fast and you give alms and you go to Mecca and you do all these things and you do them with great discipline and great fervor. And if you do it enough, then you might make it across. Or Buddhism. It says you you take these teachings and you meditate and you think about these things and you work on these things and you begin to lose yourself and become more focused on other people. And at some point you will ascend to a place that basically you can ascend over the chasm. Essentially is what it's saying. And you can go right down the list in all of those. But here's where they sharply different even from the old covenant. God was saying, yes, this is how I'm near to you. But he was constantly reinforcing that you can't do it all along the way. You will never go over the chasm by yourself. You'll never get there. And so imagine the bridge that takes you out over the great, big, huge, infinite chasm. And you're closer to God and you get there. But as you walk out on it and you stand or you make your sacrifices or you do those things and then you look down all around you. It would be a reminder every time you do this. I can't do this. There's no way I'm going to get over this. It's not possible. Every time they made a sacrifice, it was a reminder of how far they were from God in their sinfulness. And so God was graciously showing them. And so when we talk about what the old covenant was, yes, it was a way for God to be near a sinful people. He's loving and gracious and long suffering. And he's made a way for us to be near in that period that they could come and they could make their sacrifices and he could dwell with them. But he also was reinforcing over and over. You will never be able to do this on your own. And so that brings us to what Hebrews is teaching us over and over and over. Why what Jesus does brings it all to fulfillment and why he brings the new covenant, which is so very much better. And so look at the beginning of chapter eight. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And so he's talking about Jesus functioning as our high priest in the heavenlies, being our intercessor before God, all the things that we've looked at in Hebrews. And he says here, we have such a high priest. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And what he's telling you right there at the beginning in those two verses is that Jesus has bridged the gap and he's done away with the chasm. You may say, well, wait a second. How does it say that right there? Go back to chapter seven. I like to point this out when I can, but verses and chapters are something we've added after the fact. This is all one thing going together, right? And so it's not like there's a magical break at chapter eight. This is all going together. And so when he says we have such a high priest, look at verse 26 of chapter seven. For it indeed was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Right. You see the connection. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Talking about Jesus. He's perfect. We have a perfect high priest. Verse 27. 
And he doesn't offer in or he has no need like the other high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's perfect and he becomes the perfect sacrifice and he's not going to continually doing this because he only has to do it once and it's done. And then verse 28 says, and he's been made perfect forever. It's eternal. And so he says, we have such a high priest as this, that he has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is he talking about? He's finished his work. When he sits down, he's done it. He's gone in and he's done exactly what he came to do. And he's bridged this chasm that's put there by sin and death. And so everything we know about what Jesus does Old covenant, day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice, on and on and on. And then Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to put an end to all this. I'm going to go and make this sacrifice once and for all and bring the fullness of it together. And so go back to the illustration of thinking about the two sides. And here we've got a bridge that's held up. It's the temple and the sacrifices and all these things. And then Jesus shows up and he grabs one side of the chasm and he grabs the other side of the chasm and he pulls it together in himself. What happens to the bridge? Verse 13, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He does away with it. If you suddenly move the two pieces that are spread apart that you cannot get across and you're trying to build this bridge and all of a sudden Jesus does away with it, what use is the bridge? Nothing. That's what he says. And think of the context here. These people that are wanting to go back to the bridge and all the other stuff. And he's going, what are you doing? Jesus has already done all of it. Look to Jesus and what he's done. And so he's saying that over and over. And then the picture that he brings together, and you've got to put all this together going back a couple weeks. But he says he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high means he's sitting down in a place of authority as the king. And he sits down and he's finished his work and he's our perfect high priest. Beginning of chapter 7, he gives us this picture of Melchizedek, this Old Testament priest who's also a king. Do you see what he's doing? He's going, Jesus is just like that. He's not only the way that God relates to us, it's the way we relate to God and it all comes perfectly together in Jesus. And he sits down because he's finished it. And he brings the priesthood and the kingship all together in one. And he makes this picture so perfectly. And he shows us the image that this chasm is now gone. And so the picture that's there is this religious activity, all the things that we want to build up around Jesus. He says, you don't need that anymore. It's all Jesus. And so think about the picture of the cross. What happens in the last moments of Jesus on the cross? He finishes his work and he cries out, it is finished. And it says he bows his head and he gives up his spirit and it's finished. It's done. And then the Gospels tell us what happens to the temple. In that moment, there is an earthquake and the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. The holy of holies is torn in two and it's gone. Jesus does away with it. He says, you don't enter this way anymore. You enter through me and what I've done. That's what he's saying all throughout the Gospels. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the way that you come into this. And so he completely redoes the whole thing. And so you can imagine someone living in those times that's living through both and trying to come to grips with all of it. 
And the author of Hebrews is going, no, no, it's all Jesus. Don't you see how he fulfills all this? And he's doing this chapter after chapter. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the sacrifice. It's all Jesus. And he keeps pointing to you that over and over and over again. There's a great uh, preacher, British preacher. I believe he's in his late 80s now, named Dick Lucas. And he's preached in England for a long time. And uh, a friend kind of turned me on to him years ago. And I love to listen to Dick Lucas. He's a brilliant, brilliant expositor and preacher. And I was reading some of the things he said about the book of Hebrews, just as we've been going through Hebrews. And Dick Lucas said, if you want to get what Hebrews is really about, the big picture. He said, imagine a conversation between a first century Roman. And he goes on to describe Romans knew all about religion. They had all kinds of religions and temples and all sorts of priesthoods all around them. And he said, imagine a first century Roman coming into contact with a Christian saying, oh, you have a new religion. Tell me about your new religion. And so the Roman would ask, well, where is your temple? And the Christian would say, well, no, 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 we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And said, so, well, where uh, do your priests operate? And, well, no, no, we don't have a priest. Jesus is our priest. And you'd say, well, what about your sacrifices and what about offerings? And how do you do all the things that gets God to accept you? Say, no, Jesus is our sacrifice and we're already accepted because of what he's done. Well, what kind of religion is this? The Roman would ask. And Dick Lucas says the Christian would say it's no religion at all. We get Jesus. We get a, a, a living, active God that comes down and enters into a, a relationship with us. And we get him. He's the center of all of us, the glory of the new covenant. And it's not a new religious system. It's a relationship through the grace and the mercy and provision of God that he would offer his son that we can now walk straight into him through what Christ has done. And we don't need a priesthood and we don't need sacrifices and we don't need all these other things. We go right directly through Christ. And so the picture that's here is this beautiful picture. And that's what it says is he is he quotes Jeremiah, look at verses 10 and 11. For this is the covenant that I will make, looking ahead to the new covenant with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And so the picture that's there is that the holy of holies is not this place that you come upon and you can't get there and you're always looking at it and you're seeking. But now through Christ, he's defeated sin and death. He's become your sin on your behalf and blown it apart. And now the very presence of God can come and dwell in you. The holy of holies is no longer this place, but he actually lives inside of you. It's why we say all the time, we don't come to church. You are the church. God lives inside of you, not this building. We gather together as the church to celebrate together and to worship him. But you are the church. That's why I can send you out and go and do and all these things. And it's no longer go to this place and do this. It's now you go. I've sent you in the same way the father has sent me. And so you see this picture that the chasm is now gone. And the reason it's gone is because I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more because of what Jesus has done. And so we see that whole picture. Paul says it so well in Titus chapter 3. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of the bridges we build or the religious activities we seek to do, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so think on that. God is not far off and he's not just close, but he has dealt with sin and now he can come live in and with you, regenerating you, remaking you from the inside out. How far greater the new covenant is. How completely, gloriously wonderful it is compared to going to the temple and being near God but never being right there. Jesus has done it completely and totally. And so what does that mean for us Right now, things that maybe we take for granted growing up in the new covenant age. The pictures that maybe we miss. Look at verses 10 and 11 there for just a second. He says, I'm going to make this. I'm going to put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I will and they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And the first thing I want you to see is you will have true and complete and full intimacy with the God of the universe through what Jesus has done for you. And you don't have to go through a priest. Because of what Jesus has done, that you can go directly to your father. Think of Romans when Paul says, and the spirit comes and immediately turns and cries out, Abba, Father. It's now your dad. And you can speak to him and it's all through what Jesus has done. And you can come directly to him in all things because of Christ. And we have this intimacy that now comes from what Christ has purchased for us in the new covenant. But then the second thing here is he says, I will save. uh, They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And so we talked about this last week that oftentimes we try to hide different things. Uh, The mask that we wear that we don't want people to know about this. And what about this? And what about that? No, if they knew this, they wouldn't really love me. But the promise of the new covenant is God saves to the uttermost, like we talked about last week. There's no one that's beyond his reach in what he's done. And in Christ, it levels all of us at the foot of the cross. And there's no hierarchy. We are all saved the exact same way. Through the grace of God and what he's done for us in Christ. And so it levels all that garbage that we try to put in. That there's this, oh, this person over here and this person over here. Galatians 5 says if you're walking by the Spirit, you're not going to look down on people and you're not going to look up on people that we're going to be together in that way because it's all Jesus. And so the picture that's there is that we have this equality in all of us together, which leads us to the last part. That he says they will be my people. Right? I'm going to do this work and they are going to be my people. And in Christ, you now have a connection and a unity that far exceeds anything else. And so we talk about being a family of faith, that the spirit now comes in and you're restored to the father through what Jesus has done. When you sit in this room with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is closer than relatives. And we miss that a lot of times, but this is our family. You are now brought into a family fully and completely because of what Jesus has done. And those things that oftentimes we take for granted, that that's the reality of what Christ has done for us and the work he's done for us. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that he's painting for us of the new covenant versus the old. 
thank God that we get to live in the new age, right? The new covenant age that we get to be in this time and we can relate to God directly through Christ. And so let that always be our focus and our hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your word that you have made a way that we can come directly to you, that we have full and complete access through Jesus and what he's done. And for that, all we can say is simply thank you. We thank you that you have set your affections and you have loved us and you have done what we could never do for us. I pray that we would see that afresh each day, that we would see what's now true of us as a body together, that we're all saved, that we all have the same unity in Christ, that we're all saved the same way, that we're now a family that we can now rest in these things together. And for that, we thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.